Psalm 132 is where we pick up tonight as we continue our way through these uh, songs of ascent uh, as we've been looking at since Psalm 120, and they'll conclude in Psalm 134 this section of psalms that were used to be put to music and the children of Israel would sing them, we believe, as they made their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem and to the temple area uh, during the time of the, at least the three mandatory feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, as they'd be journeying and uh, coming together from the different territories of Israel and making their pilgrimage, many of them converging, seeing each other as they would many times, only just a, a few times a year, if not maybe even once a year, and they would use these psalms as kind of their worship and song set, even as we have a worship and song set we use for our worship times as we come together. And so that's what these psalms were particularly utilized for. Psalm 132, we notice, really reflects a great detail about David's strong desire to establish a physical temple there in Jerusalem. If you remember, this was David's heart. Uh, David wanted to see a house built for the Lord. There was a tabernacle, there was a tent-like structure that was mobile, and a few times it remained in a location for a season or a period of time, but over the 40-year wilderness wandering, every time they would move from location to location, they would pack it down, and then they would reassemble it again, and they would move, and they would set up the tabernacle everywhere they went. It was sort of a mobile worship center, uh, and this has been the case for a long period of time, but then, of course, ultimately, remember, once David became king, uh, David began to have a heart to see the ark of God be brought back to the center of the life of God's people and an actual physical structure be built, sort of a permanent dwelling place where God's presence would be manifest. And David knew this was in the heart of God, and this psalm seems to be somewhat of a, a reflection upon that. It tells us as it begins, uh, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. And, you know, if you were interested in going back and taking a look at David's life, really from the time that uh, the Lord's calling came upon David's life, as he was sort of the one son, as we mentioned, I believe, last week, who kind of was overlooked. Uh, he was seemed to be somewhat despised by the rest of the family and the brothers. Nobody really saw anything of potential in David's life, perhaps nobody thought anything of real value or importance would come out of his life. Maybe David lacked some of the other, uh, you know, maybe skill sets or personality traits of what people in their worldly perspective would look at in the persona of a person that, hey, that is what makes somebody a mover or a shaker. Or that's what a person needs if they're really going to put their mark on the world. And David was a young shepherd boy. He was out in the fields. He was industrious. He was caring for the flock. He was faithful to his father. Uh, but yet David had some of the attributes that God saw that were really going to be most important for him ultimately to become God's king, the, the chosen king that God intended, a, a king that would be a man after God's own heart that would shepherd the people of Israel and would ultimately replace Saul, who had really done a horrific job of overseeing and leading the people. Uh, and so God saw this in David's life, but of course, as perhaps maybe you've heard that old adage before, that sometimes before God is able to use our lives greatly, sometimes he must allow us to be wounded deeply. 
Uh, and sometimes there is that process of where God is putting us through character development and he is just doing deep things in our lives. And sometimes that's a process that involves a degree of difficulty, challenges, hardships, even afflictions. Because we all know, like 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us, God comforts us in our tribulation, our hardship, our, our painful things that we go through so that we're then more equipped to be able to effectively be comforters to other people with the same comfort we've received from God. And once you've gone through certain hard things and you've experienced God's comfort and God's help, uh, one of the things out of that is not just character development, but it makes you and I a lot more effective as comforters and ministers to other people because we can genuinely relate to what they've experienced and with a real sense of empathy and sympathy, we can relate to what they've gone through. And God was cultivating David and one of the things he was doing is you read through David's life and time doesn't permit now, but from the earliest days of his rejection to his family to some of the difficulties and things that he went through, David went through his fair share of afflictions and hardships. And even throughout the time when he then you know, began to work with Saul, and Saul was hassling him and mistreating him, and then even when he came to the throne, I mean, the hardships he went through, the family issues, David dealt with his fair share of afflictions, and so here he references, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. There was quite a bit that David was afflicted with, but it's what made David the man that he was, and I think we would all agree that many of us love the writings of David, right? We love these psalms. I mean, the, the, the majority of the psalms, certainly all given by the inspiration of the Spirit, but the majority of the psalms come to us through the pen of David. At the end of David's life, remember, he called himself the sweet psalmist of Israel as he was signing off at the end of his life. He didn't call himself David the giant killer, could have claimed that, right? That was pretty impressive. He didn't call himself David, the great military general. You know, David had many great you know, successes on the battlefield. David didn't call himself the greatest king of Israel, which the word of God and many others do uphold David with that kind of uh, title that he was probably the greatest king that ever existed in Israel. But what David claimed was that he was the sweet psalmist of Israel. What mattered to David was that the spirit of the Lord spoke by him and gave him things to say under the inspiration of the spirit that ended up being expressions that only could have come out of what says here, all of his afflictions, his hardships, his ups and downs, and all the ranges of emotion that could let David articulate those things under the inspiration of the spirit that have great value in our lives. And truth be told, David's psalms have been much more far-reaching and have accomplished much more ministry than all the other things that David did, right? David's role as a king, that helped one particular generation of God's people. David's psalms that come from David's afflictions and the prophetic and wonderful things David articulated as the Holy Spirit gave them to him, those things have helped generations and generations and generations all the way down to you and I and in this recent season going through these psalms. I hope you as well as myself have benefited from the things the Holy Spirit has given to us in these psalms that we can relate to and you know, hear God's voice through. And here's the interesting thing. Though David went through a good degree of afflictions, David did not regress into that place where because of his sufferings, he kind of just regressed into a dark place and he didn't let his afflictions hold him back. Instead, he let all of his afflictions be something he used in a redemptive way because 
It tells us despite his many afflictions, all the hardships he went through, that he still had a tremendous heart to see God glorified, to see the work of God expanded, because notice verse 2, how he, that's David, swore to the Lord, this man David who was afflicted, went through a lot of hard things, but that didn't hold him back spiritually, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, he says, verse 2, surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So what's being referred to here in verses 2 to 5 is the passage of Scripture we know from 2 Samuel chapter 7 where David began to express this desire within his heart to want to find a permanent dwelling place where at the central place of the nation of Israel, the capital city of Jerusalem, that the ark could be brought where the presence of God was manifest and where the people would assemble to worship and that they would build a permanent house for God, a temple, a gathering place where people could come to and seek God and experience God's presence and offer sacrifices in loving worship and devotion to the Lord. And David describes these very things that we have referenced here in verses 2 to 5 in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And remember kind of how that culminated Back in 1 Samuel chapter 7, after the ark, which remember, that was the central piece of furniture in the worship life of God's people, after the ark was captured when the Philistines conquered the nation of Israel, and the Bible says that the glory of God departed, because remember, the ark was where God manifested his presence. There at the mercy seat on top of the ark, that was where God's presence was manifest among his people. It represented the glory of God and the presence of God. When they disobeyed God, they tried to just use the ark like a, like a lucky charm in some way, something that they could use uh, to just kind of conquer their enemies. Ultimately, because they weren't depending upon God and his presence, God allowed them to be conquered. The Philistines, remember, captured the ark. They took it away, but when they took it into the land of the Philistines, God afflicted them with a lot of problems and ultimately, they decided we want nothing to do with the ark, with God's presence. This is not faring well for us. We don't know how to worship this God. They sent it back to the nation of Israel. And when they sent the ark back to the nation of Israel, remember, no one, it seems, had interest in the ark or was willing to be open to receive the ark because of the fear of God. And the ark ended up, in a sense, being parked, if you would. I hate to use that term, I use it somewhat reverently, ends up being parked at the house of a man named Abinadab. And for 20 years, it's there in his house. It's not really being utilized. It's not a part of the central worship life of God's people. And after this 20-year span of the ark sitting there, David's heart was moved, and he wants the ark to be brought back to the center of the life of God's people. And remember, the first time David tried to do that, it didn't work out real well. Remember, David used just worldly conventional wisdom, and he tried to put it on a cart and got a band playing, and he basically used everything that seemed like worldly conventional ideas of good common sense reasoning, and he put it on a cart, and he tried to bring it in with this big parade and the big hoopla and all the excitement and enthusiasm, and remember, the animals stumbled, and the one man reached out his hand uh, and, and tried to stabilize the ark, and God struck him dead. 
for their irreverence and because he was, in a sense, trying to help God and touch the glory in the flesh in some ways. Someone died on the spot, and then David went back and began to contemplate and search the Scripture and realized the problem is, is we're trying to do God's work our way instead of doing God's work God's way. And remember, the ark was supposed to be carried upon the shoulders of the priests. They were to bear the ark and to reverently, showing honor to God, carry it and bring it in in a very reverent way. And they weren't doing things according to God's way. And David realizes, according to the word of God, we've been doing this all wrong. So as they bring the ark back to Jerusalem, it's at that point that we are told that as David gets established in his kingdom, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David basically goes through this struggle, which is described in our verses here, how it says that he described verse 3, Surely I'll not go into the chamber of my house or the comfort of my bed or give sleep to my eyes until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place, that is a permanent dwelling place to build a house for the Lord, a worship center, the temple, for the mighty one of Jacob. And 2 Samuel describes how David, it says, after God gave him rest from his enemies and he had this beautiful palace that he had built, David's sitting around and he's looking at his circumstances and because of his love for God and genuine honor for God, he realizes, here I am in a mansion. (laughs) I got a palace. I got a mansion. And there's poor God out there in a tent. And David starts feeling bad for God. And he's thinking, I can't believe this. I have this crystal cathedral, this beautiful cedar, gorgeous palace that I've dumped all this money into to make myself living on the Ritz. And there's God out there in the presence of God. And God's in a, and he's in a tent. And it just bothered David. And it was being something that was stirring his spirit. And that's where David began to have this kind of mindset and these desires in his heart where he swore to the Lord and he said to Nathan, I've got to build God a house. And that was where this whole desire began. And of course, ultimately we realize that God declines David's offer, tells him because he's a man of war who had shed blood that he couldn't be the one to build God's house. But God didn't say that David couldn't find the property, that he couldn't find the location that he couldn't lay up all the resources and provide for it and prepare Solomon and do everything he could to get. And and really, if you think about it, all Solomon did was oversee the construction process. Remember, David found the location. In fact, that's what he says there in verse five, until I find a place, a dwelling place. David was the one who was sensitive to the Holy Spirit and sensed and found the location, which was Jerusalem, which was where the temple was to be built. David was the one who laid up all the resources and provided everything necessary to accumulate what was needed to build the temple, this glorious structure for God's people to gather it and worship. David was the one who received, remember, all the plans, and David had all the blueprints and all the instructions and gave that to Solomon and everyone because this was something that was in his heart to do. But it is just a beautiful thing to see David in this description here how, notice, David was not able to be at rest just indulging his own personal comforts and disregarding the work of God. And this is what David's describing here, as in 2 Samuel refers to. He says, I can't go into my chamber and in my beautiful house and live in comfort and luxury and just enjoy and indulge myself personally and not do something to participate in the work of God. And David had a heart to honor God. He wanted to see God honored. He wanted to see God's work flourish. 
And David shows a beautiful heart attitude, a man truly after God's own heart. It doesn't mean that it was wrong for David to have the luxury that he did, but David said, I can't just live in luxury and self-indulgence and not do things for God's honor as well. I can't not channel my time and energy and resources and efforts for God's glory also. I, I need to see God's work come to pass. And this was where that heart desire for the temple came from. And David here gives a, a beautiful example of that. I think too often as God's people, we can, especially in an American culture, we can get way too caught up uh, in the ways of the world and material living and so on and so forth. And it's amazing how much time, effort, money, interest, endeavors we will put into our own comforts and luxury and enjoyable living. And not that those things are wrong in and of themselves, but it's amazing how much emphasis and priority and investment goes into that and then how very little of our leftovers go to God's glory and seeing that God's honored and giving ourselves to the things of the Lord and this was something that David, he didn't want to allow to happen. He said, I can't do that. I need to do what I can to find a dwelling place for the Lord. Verse 6 goes on then to describe how the ark ultimately made its way into Jerusalem. It says, behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. And Ephrathah, remember, Micah chapter 5, verse uh, 2 tells us that this is Bethlehem Ephrathah. So this is the hometown of David. So it seems it was the people of David's family it says that it was heard there, we found it. Now, that's a reference to the ark. We found it in the fields of the woods. The idea is that it seems for a while there was confusion where maybe the ark even was. It had been for 20 years kind of something that was just overlooked, which is kind of a sad testimony. Again, because the ark, as we've said, represented, the ark represented God's presence and God's glory. And it says that the people had to go and search and find the presence of God and the glory of God. The idea is it kind of seemed to be something that kind of just went off everybody's radar. People were still doing their religious activities, but they weren't even really recognizing or concerned that God's presence was what was the most important part, not just doing religious activities, but actually having a real experience with God. And so it says that, that they began to go and look for it, and they found it, we know the Bible tells us, and kirjath Urim in the house of Abinadab, and they said, verse 7, let us then go into his tabernacle and let us worship at his footstool. And then verse 8, arise, O Lord. Now, this is referring to the ark, and Numbers chapter 10 tell us that this was a statement they would make whenever they would move and the ark would be taken to a new location because, again, it represented God's presence, that they would say, Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. So when, when God's presence would move from one location to the other and, and they wanted God to be leading them and to follow the presence of the Lord, this would be their prayer. They would say this, Numbers chapter 10 tells us, Arise, O Lord, to your resting place. Lord, where are you leading? Lord, what do you want to do? What is best for your glory and your honor? And the people didn't try and sort of drive God and ask God to bless what they were doing. Instead, they, they wanted God to direct, and they just wanted to let God lead them. And so they would pray, arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. You lead us, Lord, and we're just going to follow whatever you're doing. That's certainly the way the pattern should be. 
And so they, they would pray this, and so we see them referencing that, and then they also would say, verse 9, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. So notice, priests, those who would serve in the work of God, may they be clothed or robed with righteousness. The idea is that they would have a righteous or a pure standing before God. And I find that interesting. Notice that they wanted to be in a position in their life where they were in a place that they were living righteous and they had a pure and righteous standing before God. It's a great prayer because it's only as we're experiencing purity in our life that we make ourselves the most really available and useful vessel for the Lord's work to flow through us. And so for the priests to have a pure heart and a righteous standing to be in right relationship with God, that was essential for God's presence and God's glory to work. So they were praying that very thing, Lord, may your priests be right with you because we don't want them to hinder the thing that you're trying to do so that your saints may shout for joy. Now, here's what's interesting. You notice verse 9, that's a prayer. And down in verse 16, God answers the prayer. God says, I will clothe her priests with salvation. Same term, translated a little differently. And her saints shall shout aloud with joy. So whenever God's people pray, Lord, we want to be right with you. We want our hearts to be pure because we don't want anything to hold back your glory and your presence from working among us, and we don't want anything to hinder us from being able to have an experience with you so that your saints can celebrate you. That's a prayer God is always wanting to answer to prepare us because he does want to work by his presence in the midst of his people. Verse 10 says, for your servant David's sake, notice for the covenant between God and David, for your servants David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. And again, that word anointed there is the word Messiah that we know, Mashiach in the Hebrew. It's a reference, of course, to the anointed set apart of God. And ultimately, it's a term used quite continuously of Jesus, the Messiah, who would come through David's line. And remember, that was in connection to 2 Samuel 7, when David first wanted to build God a house. Remember, when God declined David's offer, God also said to him, David, I actually have a better idea in mind. I want to build you a house. You want to build me a physical structure. That's great. And honestly, David, I've never dwelt in physical structures, and I'm pleased that you had that in your heart. And though you're not the one called to do that, I'm going to honor and reward just the desire in your heart, David. But in fact, David, because your heart is so in tune with mine and you want to see my best and my glory come to pass, David, I've actually chosen you to be the one through which the dynasty of the Messiah, the anointed one, would come through your family line. And in 2 Samuel 7 is where David gets that covenant promise of God that God would build David a house. And he made that covenant with David, and that's why verse 11 says, the Lord has sworn in truth to David, referring to that very thing, he will not turn from it, I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. And if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, that is obedience to the word of God, there was a conditional aspect for David's sons, their sons shall also sit upon your throne forevermore. So here this references to what happened in 2 Samuel 7, where God assured David that he was going to build a dynasty through his family and that through David's family lineage from the house of David, ultimately God would 
set upon the throne of David, continuously the fruit of his own body. But notice, it was to be those who would ultimately sit upon the throne, verse 12, forevermore. The idea is continuously, because ultimately, though David's sons did falter from time to time, God honored that covenant for David's sake and didn't turn away his face from his anointed because God, through that, was going to bring the son of David, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to sit upon the throne of David forever, even as Luke chapter 1 gave that reassurance, remember, to Mary when the angel spoke to her that she was going to give birth to a son and he would sit on the throne of his father and David forever and ever, that is eternally. And of course, referencing to through David's family line, the Messiah would come. So the psalmist here makes reference to these events and how important they were that out of the desire of David, God brought something even greater. So David had a desire to want to do something for God. He wanted to see God honored. He didn't want to just live in personal indulgence and pleasure and just kind of worldly living his whole life. He wanted to see God honored. He wanted to see God's presence and God's glory be the foremost thing. And out of that desire, basically, God was so pleased with that, God said, you know what, David? Out of that desire, I've got an even bigger desire. I got an even better desire. And what a neat thing to think about that sometimes we think we have a desire for God and God's going, that's kind of a neat desire, but I got an even better idea. I got an even bigger idea. David, you're just thinking about building one little structure. David, I'm thinking about building something that's going to last for generations and all the way down through eternity. And how wonderful to realize, like the New Testament scripture says, you know, that, that God has that nature where he often does exceedingly abundantly above and beyond, right, whatever we can even ask or think. The idea is we're asking something of God, that God would do something, or we're thinking, man, Lord, it would be awesome for you to do this. It'd be awesome to see you accomplish this, and God goes, you're kind of thinking small, aren't you? That's all you're thinking? Just that? I mean, if we're talking about my glory and my presence, why stop at that? Because God knows that he has no limitations, and God saw David's desire, and God gives a promise, the messianic promise, that through his family... The fruit of his own body, one of his sons, ultimately Jesus Christ himself of the house of David, would sit upon the throne of David forever. These very verses were, in fact, prayed and quoted when Solomon was dedicating the temple itself. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, you'll see the same verses appearing, even from verses 10 through 12 here. And then verse 13 describes how the Lord ultimately had a plan to do something much further out than even that promise to David, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place, God said, forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So God describes his desire. Remember, David said, I'm not going to rest until I find a dwelling place for God. I'm going to keep seeking and praying and searching until God shows me what he wants, until God directs what that is. And then ultimately, uh, it tells us here, verse 13, that, that God says, this is what I have chosen. You want to know what I've chosen? I'm going to tell you now what I've chosen. This location and God, for whatever his sovereign purposes, uh, even as he chose the nation of Israel to be his chosen people, to work through the Jews, to bring the Messiah, to bring the word of God, uh, God chose particularly Zion, Jerusalem, because that's what he desired. And that's how God chooses. God chooses according to what he desires, not according to what I desire, 
not according to what you desire, not according to what seems like the most relevant thing of the day. God chooses according to his desires. And God says, this is what I desire. I've chosen Jerusalem. That's going to be my resting place. And there I will dwell. I'll manifest my presence because that's what I've desired. And that's how we want God to choose. Lord, what do you desire? Lord, please, just, I don't want what I desire. Just make your desires and my desires come together and converge. Lord, put your desires into my heart. And the Bible does tell us that, right? We saw in an earlier psalm that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he does what? Gives us the desires of our heart. Does that mean if we delight ourselves in the Lord, oh, Lord, I'm enjoying you, I'm enjoying you so much, and I got a desire for a $3.5 million house, so give it to me, Lord. No, that, that's not what the verse means. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, the idea is that we enjoy the Lord so much, just Him, just His presence, godliness with contentment, the Bible says is great gain in the New Testament. And the idea is when you are just enjoying the Lord and His presence and the things of eternity and the kingdom of God so much, God starts to put His desires upon our heart. And then our desires begin to reflect really God's desires. And when it's something God's desired and chosen, then we have God's will written on the fleshly tablet of our heart and we begin to pray and ask things that are in accordance with God's desire. And God says, thank you for asking that. That's exactly what I desire to do. <laughs> so I'm gonna answer that. You're asking it and God just uses the channel of working into our hearts. He writes onto our will, the fleshly tablet there, the things that he wants. And the Bible says that God works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. And that's how this whole beautiful thing came to pass with David. God says, that is where I dwell. That is what I've desired. And I, God says, verse 15, will abundantly bless her provision. And I will satisfy her poor with bread. So notice when God's in something, when it's what he's chosen, when it's his desire, look what God does. He provides everything. God says, this is what I've chosen. That's what I desire. And in connection to that, and I will abundantly bless her provision and satisfy her poor whatever with whatever's needed. So in essence, we often use this term, Pastor Chuck coined it many years ago, it has great wisdom to it, that when God guides, God provides, right? So when God says, this is what I've chosen, that's what I desire, this is what I want to do, God finances it, God does it, God abundantly blesses. You don't have to beg, you don't have to sell it, you don't have to market it, you, you don't have to do that. If God is in something, God finances what he does. God is more than able to abundantly supply and provide. So uh, when God is leading something and the Lord is in it, it is amazing how God, in a sense, puts his stamp of authentication on it by simply abundantly blessing with his provision what is needed to bring it to pass. And the Bible tells us even when they were constructing the temple, it got to a certain point where so much was coming in, they had to actually tell the people, stop giving. We can't even store all the stuff. We don't need this much money. Go do something else with it. That's how you know the Lord's into something. They literally had to tell the people, stop, you're giving too much money. We can't spend it as quick as you're turning it in, as much as they were bringing their resources to try and rally behind the building of the beautiful temple, even in Solomon's days. Verse 16, and God answers that prayer from earlier. I will clothe her priests with salvation. Her saints shall shout aloud. 
for joy, and there I will make the horn of David grow. And again, the, the horn is always a reference to authority or rule. So God's saying there in that location, I will cause the authority of David as my king, as my shepherd leader, I'll cause his authority to grow, to flourish. I'm going to cause his rulership to expand and to develop more and more. And I will prepare a lamp for my anointed, that is, I'll give light to provide direction for the one I've anointed. I'll give clarity as a lamp to see what to do and what not to do. And verse 18, he concludes, and his enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. The Hebrew literally means his crown shall be glorious in the eyes of all. That's the idea, that the flourishing of the crown, the rulership of the king on the throne would be glorious in the eyes of all the onlookers there. And of course, as we read these verses, we realize to a degree, did they speak of what God did through David and his descendant Solomon? Yes, absolutely. But to a greater degree, these same verses speak very clearly of what's continuing to unfold and will ultimately culminate in the son of David, Jesus Christ, when he comes back to rule in Jerusalem. And he does rule and reign there as the anointed one that in that time God is going to make the rulership and the authority of Jesus, verse 17, to grow. And God will cause his enemies to be clothed with shame. All those who've resisted Christ and his rulership and upon himself Jesus' crown will flourish. He will be in living in great glory in the kingdom age. And all men will come to Jerusalem to honor him as the great and glorious king there. Psalm 133, a more perhaps familiar psalm, many of us have heard before. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. So the psalmist here speaks about the wonderful blessing and the value and the benefits of unity among the Lord's people, that God's heart is that his family would live in harmony, not disunity, not fracture, not divisive and nasty and mean and cruel, because that's how people in the world live, right? And God says, no, this is my family characterized by my love and my spirit and the power to live differently than people in the world do and relate differently and treat each other differently. And, and so here he speaks about this glorious thing of unity, dwelling together in unity. And what a beautiful thing in connection to these songs of ascent, these songs that were sung as all of God's people from the nation of Israel came from all different locations to merge together in Jerusalem to gather together and they would dwell together for a week there worshiping God and celebrating the feast and so forth. And think about it, though they were certainly, uh, most of them all Jews as well as maybe others as well, uh, those who had were proselytes to, to Judaism, but they were coming from all different locations all throughout the nation of Israel, right? 12 different tribes living in different geographic locations, living at different socioeconomic statuses. Some were more wealthy, some were very poor. Some were from rural areas, some were from more built-up cities. So you had all of this diversity among God's people. 
But yet when they came together, it was the unifying factor of that they had the same father. They were different by design. They had different things about them, but none of that caused separation and division where it didn't need to anyway. And what God wanted is for them to be able to set aside their differences and enjoy unity and harmony in the fact that they had that one central thing that no matter what town they were from, what their uh, you know, status in life was or their social situation, young, old, whatever, that they all loved God and they were worshipers of God and building around the worship of a God was where the unity could come together with them. And as they'd come together, God says here, you know, it's such a, a good and a pleasant thing when brethren, spiritual family, can dwell together in unity, live in a harmonious way not being divisive, not separating themselves, not doing things to be cruel and nasty to one another and fracturing relationships or just walking away and abandoning one another. And that's not the heart of God. Again, and it is interesting too that he says that they dwell together in unity. Because see, you can have unity if you don't dwell together. <laughs> it's much more easy to have unity with somebody that you don't got to dwell together with. Any married person knows that. Right? There's a degree of unity you can maintain. Then two people dwell together. And now you got to work a little harder at unity because now you're dwelling together and you're fully engaged continuously and you're, you're really doing things together. That's where the challenge comes, right? That's when you got to do things to try and maintain the unity of the spirit as the Bible talks about. We're unified, but we always have to keep working at maintaining unity. And God says to be able to dwell together in unity Though you have a lot of differences, and God knew that. I know you're from all different areas. you got different ideas, and, but God says, but to come together and dwell together and be in unity, God says, wow, that's such a good and a pleasant thing, how good and pleasant when that happens. And I think good and pleasant in two ways, good and pleasant to God, and it's good and pleasant for us, right? And you know, it's often been said before by many in this psalm that it's interesting that God says it's both good and pleasant when his people dwell together in unity. Because there are certain things in life that are good, but they're not pleasant. Right? We know there are certain things that are good, maybe exercise, it's good, but it's not always pleasant, right? It's good, it's good for us, but it not, may not be something pleasant that we enjoy. There are a lot of things that are good that aren't necessarily pleasant, and there are some things that are pleasant or pleasurable, but they're not good. True? God says here, this is both good and it's pleasant simultaneously at the same time. And so God says this in relationship to his people, his children dwelling together in unity, because when we dwell together in unity and our father sees that as his children, and of course the same applies for us now as God's people in the church, that's both good and it's pleasant to God. It's both. It's good for God, and it's pleasant to God. And any parent understands that who raised... You know, if you had more than one kid, you understand that right away. No parent enjoyed their kids squabbling or fighting, right? It was, it was good, and it was really pleasant when they just got along, right? Can you just get along, please? It was good, and it was pleasant when they got... It was enjoyable, and it was a good thing, and it was bad and very unpleasant when your kids didn't get along. Well, it's the same is true for God. And the same is true for us as God's children. It's good for us when we learn how to get along and live in unity. And it's pleasant for us. And it's really bad when we're not dwelling in unity. And it's really unpleasant 
when God's people are fighting and bickering and becoming divisive and separating and just generating division. And when you read the Word of God, it's very clear, particularly in the New Testament, that dwelling together in unity is a mark of maturity. And division and disunity is always a mark of immaturity. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about that very clearly when he says, I really would like to speak to you like mature adults, but I have to talk to you like a bunch of babies. And he says, and here's why, because you're carnal and you're all divisive and you're all basically power hungry, struggling, striving. You all want your way. You can't get along and you can't set aside your own agendas and your own attitudes and have humility and love and learn how to dwell together in unity instead. Remember, they, the Corinthian church, they were just, they were fighting and divisive. And, and, and that was bad for them and unpleasant to live in that environment. And it was bad for God because it was a really embarrassing testimony, right? And when God's kids don't get along, it's really bad press for God. It, it really is. And it's very unpleasant for God to have to watch such when he's looking at going, man, I've given you my love and my power and, and, and you're behaving like that? So immature? And it's a mark of immaturity. Whereby the same token, as we, Ephesians 4 says, seek to work towards unity, God in Ephesians 4 says that's a mark of maturity. When we can learn how to get along and work through things and live in harmony and unity, it's something that marks a characterization of maturing that we're progressing and growing in our lives. And he describes how God views it as a blessing. He says this dwelling together in unity is like the precious oil upon the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down the edge of his garments. So he describes it, again, he's liking it, metaphor, to the anointing upon Aaron. And remember, Aaron was the high priest, and the anointing oil upon the high priest Aaron or any one of his descendants as they would pour it over the head and then it would run down on the beard and ultimately run down, notice, to the edge of his garments. I mean, it was a pretty dramatic thing as they would put the oil on and it would run down. But the anointing oil was to be emblematic. Remember, it was emblematic of a couple things. It was emblematic that this is God's desire. This high priest, this one who I have chosen, it's my desire that they would be set apart for this service. So the anointing oil represented God was pleased with this person and it was his desire. And it also, of course, was emblematic of the, the power of the Spirit and the empowering of the Spirit. So as God talks about brethren dwelling together in unity, God says it's a really precious thing because it's what my desire is. And it is the very thing whereby I might operate my power through that. Because when people are all disunified, what does the Bible say? Jesus declared a house divided against itself won't stand. But when we're unified and we can dwell together in unity and work towards unity continuously, not only is it good and pleasant to God, but it's also precious in a way where God says, that's exactly what I desire. That's what I desire right there. Unity, loving one another, working through things, cooperating together in humility, and God says, and I can operate my power through that when people are working together in unity. It's often been said before, I know I've said it, but it's a great statement, you know, that, that, that there's no limit that what, of what can be done when a group of people can work together and they don't care who gets the glory. It's amazing how God's power can work in a situation like that, where just that harmony and unity and God can, like the anointing of Aaron, work through that. He says it's also, verse 3, this unity of God's people like the dew of Hermon, which is that 
northernmost mountainous region in Israel where great amounts of dew and moisture would come upon it, descending upon the ideas, though it's 200 miles away from each other, all the way, the idea is the effects of that moisture and the, the runoff and so forth, even bringing revival and flourishing all the way to the mountains of Zion. And there he just pictures that unity among God's people. It's, it's something that's it's refreshing. It, it causes things to flourish. And, and I think it is a very refreshing thing to see people getting along, isn't it? <laughs> because you don't see that a lot out in the world. You see people always divisive and mean and nasty and families not getting along and people not getting along in societies. And so it's a really refreshing thing when God's people are getting along as a family. And God goes, boy, that's something that people see that and go, wow. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, the whole world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Not your love for the unsaved world, your love for one another. It's a powerful testimony. Because there's something very refreshing when God's people are dwelling together and they understand how to live in unity despite their differences. They love and they work together in harmony and they maintain that. And notice he says the end of verse 3, for there, where? That is in that place where God's people are dwelling together in unity. There the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. Now, I just like the fact that God says that he'll bless unity. But the Holy Spirit says the Lord commands his blessing. The idea is the Holy Spirit says, with that kind of unity and harmony and love, I'm, my blessing has to go upon that. God says, I'm commanding it. I'm commanding life. I'm commanding more life and new life and flourishing, refreshing, you know, things, expanding. He's just commanding life evermore, the blessing of the Lord upon unity. Boy, that's a great incentive to want to well together in unity, isn't it? To realize it matters that much to God, and it's a great incentive to not want to give in to disunity and ever become divisive, and to right away stop that, because it's a, a thing where God, perhaps we might say, if God commands his blessing on unity, now I'm going to speculate, might mean that God is going to retract his blessing from disunity. I don't know. Maybe that's reading in the scriptures. You can stone me afterwards. Psalm 134. Can we tolerate one more? Let's do it. It's only three verses. He says, Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. The Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. Now, again, Psalm 134. Notice, shortest of all those we've seen so far, and it brings us to the end, the culmination, really, of this section, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, these songs of ascent. And this is the last one that we get, the shortest of all. He simply says here, behold, consider, think upon, even as he told him in the prior psalm, behold, consider, think about how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity, he says, well, think about this too. Behold, consider this, to bless the Lord. Again, often we want to be blessed by the Lord, right? But he says, consider this, bless the Lord. And he says, all you servants of the Lord who by night stand in the house of the Lord. Now, that would be a reference to those who are the sort of the, the temple security guards, the Levites, the ministers, some of them. Remember, because once the temple was established, you remember what ultimately was something that was brought to pass. It was 24-7 worship in the house of God. 
the worship never ceased. So there were people who were on the night shift. There were people who were there around the clock, standing by night in the house of the Lord, whether the singers giving praise to God or the security guards making sure that nothing defiled had come into the temple or nobody was trying to disrupt what was going on. These were the workers who were working even the night shift. They were laboring hard, working into the long hours of the night, standing in the house of the Lord, wearying themselves as servants of the Lord. But notice, God does not want just work. God also wants worship. And it's interesting to me that as he speaks here to the servants of the Lord, especially those who are pulling the night shift, standing all night in the house of the Lord, wearying themselves in the work of God and exhaustion, he says, consider this, the work, the service, the servanthood, it's great. But he says, consider this, you should also bless the Lord. God also wants our worship. And look, let me say to you, be very, very careful of the subtle hypospirituality that can creep into all of our lives sometimes where we want to exchange Christian work for Christian worship. And I have seen over the years sometimes where people can almost start to try and substitute work and service, and they love serving, they love working, and I have watched people over the years that all they want to do is serve and work and serve and work and serve and work, and they never want to sit and worship. They never want to come into the sanctuary and worship God and just bless God and express. And that's not healthy. That's not healthy. Because it is to be a worshiper first, to bless the Lord, that is the number one priority in your life. John chapter 4 tells us that very thing. Jesus said, the Father is spirit, and the Father is seeking such to worship him He's seeking worshipers to worship in spirit and truth. Interesting, Jesus said the Father is not seeking workers. He's seeking worshipers. He's seeking worshipers. Now, the way that some ministries conduct themselves, constantly begging for workers, you would think God's looking for workers. And the harvest is plentiful and the laborers few, and we're to pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field not beg during morning announcements. We need more workers in the harvest field. No, we're to ask God to raise up workers to send them into the heart. That's the proper way to get workers. But here's the thing. If you get worshipers, guess what worshipers become? Workers. Because <laughs> when you start blessing God and worshiping God, the reciprocal thing that happens out of that is you then in a responsive way you want to serve God and then it's not a burden and a labor it's a privilege and an honor and you just I want to do something Lord I want to serve you somehow I love worshiping you but and and I find the people who are the greatest worshipers oftentimes become the greatest workers but then there's that healthy tension and balance in their life where it's an overflow of what they're doing. Notice he gives the encouragement, verse 2, lift up your hands, and we've seen this many times, in the sanctuary, and bless the Lord. And the lifting up of the hands was something to be done in singing and praise as well as in prayer. The Bible tells us to do both, to lift our hands in praise and worship and singing and to lift our hands in prayer as well. The idea of lifting hands is certainly to give honor to God, but it also implies the idea of God, I am empty-handed, and as we pray with lifted hands, Lord, I am empty-handed. And, and you need to supply. I got nothing to bring here, Lord. My hands are empty. Can't solve this problem. Can't, can't, I don't have the resources to do this, Lord. My hands are empty. I'm begging, please, God. I'm dependent. 
I need your help. And again, lifting of the hands also implies it's, a, it's also a posture of surrender, right? Somebody pulls a weapon on you as a law enforcement officer, if you're smart, if you don't want to get tased and be the next one on YouTube, you go like this. You're an authority, I'm not. I yield, I surrender. What a beautiful thing. God says, lift up your hands. God's in authority, right? We want to be in that posture of surrender. Oh, I don't lift my hands. That's weird. I don't lift my... It's not weird. It's biblical. I just want to encourage you, get beyond your human inhibitions. If you struggle with lifting your hands to the Lord, whether it's in your personal prayer time or your personal worship time, I don't recommend it when you're driving. Well, you can lift one hand if you're pretty good. You know, If you're beyond your probationary license, you can lift one hand. But in your public gathering as well, to lift your hands to the Lord. I'm telling you, something happens. God wouldn't just say it to say it for a vain purpose. God says nothing for a vain reason. There's something that happens in the heart, right? When you lift your hands in prayer, you lift your hands at times in worship. Just a, a very beautiful thing that happens experientially as we're worshiping and seeking and praying and blessing the Lord. And notice verse 3, he concludes and he says, And then the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you. So notice, bless the Lord, worship the Lord, and then the psalmist pronounces back. And what an interesting closure to these psalms all about going up to Jerusalem to worship at the feast time. His final word at the end of these songs was sent, may the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you. As they went up to the house of the Lord and they congregated and they assembled to worship and be with God's people and lift their praises, sing their songs, offer their sacrifices, they came together for a time of worship and celebration. He says, may the Lord who made heaven and earth, may he bless you out of Zion. What was in Zion? The house of God. Where does God bless us from so often? Through and from the house of God because that's where God's presence is often working powerfully, His Spirit, His glory, and it's amazing the blessings that come into our life as the result of being in the house of God. And I love that he says, this Lord who can command a blessing, He is the one who blesses us, and He's the one who made heaven and earth. Sounds to me like God's got a lot of power, doesn't it? This God who can choose to bless our lives, He's the same God who made heaven and earth. You know what kind of power that gives God to bless? To what degree God can bless if he's a creator of the heavens and the earth? What a wonderful thing. Let's stand together.